Hello and welcome to this episode of What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narratives that shape the industry. This week we're talking to Mark Boyd, who is the founder of Platformable, an organisation that helps to support governments and businesses to build platforms and ecosystems that allow users to participate and collaborate. Hi Mark. Hey, g'day. Maybe the best place to start is just to kind of get you to just kind of introduce yourself. I'm sure Sure. you can introduce yourself better than I can. And yeah, who you are and like what you doing what platformable is as well yeah lovely um so hey everyone my name's mark boyd i use the pronouns he and him so i'm the founder of platformable and i normally refer to myself as writer analyst because um that that's sort of where my strengths lie i think and um hopefully the business will grow big enough that I can actually hire someone to be managing it. Uh, so what we do is we measure the value of open ecosystems. So there's so there's a move towards, with data and with um, shared services, there's this move towards opening up the data sets and then all, but also the functionalities that enable things to happen. So in like banking, for example, banks held a sort of monopoly over financial services and they controlled what was built and how money flowed and everything. And then all of the financial tech startups came along. And so then the governments responded to that by actually forcing banks to have to open up and share their uh, innovation with the wider market. So out of that, then banks in this instance, so banks have had to do use APIs, which are like application programming interfaces, which are about like how connecting different systems together. So banks are forced then to use APIs to open up their like functionalities for like payments, account information, all of that sort of thing. It's done securely and the end bank customer can consent and decide who should who should they should connect their bank account to. So there's no fears there. But what that means is that then an ecosystem can develop where everyone can participate and co-create in their own value. So then what we do at Platformable is we measure, is that really happening? Is it actually enabling everyone to participate or is it just replicating the bank system and then only allowing certain players to be able to participate or is it actually changing the dynamics? And so because we're, you know, like that model, because of digital economies, that model is then going to be introduced for open energy, for open finance more generally, for how we respond to uh, climate crises. It's happening in digital government. It's happening in um, in communications. There's a sort of open communication and open telco area as well. So all of those are going to be open ecosystems and it'll be important to measure whether or not as the sort of core infrastructure for like the societal fabric, digital fabric, is it creating imbalances? Is it um, creating innovation? All of that sort of fun stuff. That's what we measure. When you say open ecosystem, do you just mean that they have to have open APIs to connect with partners or are you talking open source or what's the difference? So uh, it's a bit of both actually. So it's it's, it's the whole idea is you might have a, cl- a closed ecosystem. I would consider something like Amazon Marketplace where you can, so they're sort of, they're open APIs, but you need to have an Amazon account. You need to be working within the 
sort of Amazon world in order to be able to build. So like if you build a product with the Amazon APIs, the only place you can really go and use that is within their ecosystem and be building and serving other Amazon clients and that sort of stuff. So that I would call like a closed ecosystem. Um, whereas an open one, would be that so there's that so that for example so then there's not that relationship that's bound between the provider and the builder sort of thing or you know api consumer if you like so a bank might have the apis someone can come along and build something that uses those apis they've got to get approval from the bank to prove that they've got a secure app or whatever but that's the that can be the end of the relationship you know, whereas if you build something with the Amazon API, you've got to get approval for, uh, from Amazon. You've got to get their rights to be on their marketplace. You've got to, you know, like, and that, so they control that relationship fully with all of their ecosystem players. Whereas an open ecosystem, it, it doesn't bind anyone and close people off from participating. But there's still some sort of checks and balances in case there's a security issue or... So then we would say there's, so then there are those, they, they are sort of part of what the regular, what we see is the regulators should be doing. So the, so partly the regulators and also standards bodies help significantly with this as well. So they're able to set up like when they're in an open ecosystem, hopefully if you're building with open source tools, you're building to open standards. And so therefore people have kicked the tires enough that they're actually robust from a security point of view. Then you actually put in like uh, in open banking in Europe, and in Indonesia, in Singapore, in Australia, Brazil's just introduced it. But they've got in the regulation, they've got minimum standard requirements for what sort of security you use so that it is a secure system because you need to be building out that trust. And so there's that. And so we're seeing that even with health. I've been doing some work around opening up health with APIs. And there you need a sort of new balance of security to ensure the privacy of health data for individuals. But also you need to be able to aggregate and share that at a um, wider level so it can be used for things like COVID responses and uh, other disease prevention or creation of new therapies and medications or whatever. Just to kind of go a bit deeper on kind of, you still mentioned health, I sort of wanted to ask you, obviously, these are quite kind of complex technical issues, but you're also working at a sort of more of an organisational level. And who are you actually working with? Who are you talking to? And and how do you like talk differently to these different groups? So... I try to, we try to pull back from the technical. We understand a bit of the technical, but we don't want to go too deep into the weeds on that. That's not our, where we, so we, so, and this is a big issue, actually, I think in policy, government policy, especially um, globally at the moment, is there's a reluctance to actually name APIs in technology policy. So as a result, it's sort of, it's all fudged a bit to the point where someone implementing a policy could still go off on an odd tangent, you know? So we see this with things like the Green Deal, where it says, you know, we should have a connected system where, you know, like if, so with the Green Deal in Europe, for example, they're wanting to bring in an idea around a circular economy. So products, any product you pick up from a supermarket shelf, you should be able to understand the full lifetime cost of that product, the carbon footprint, how long it will take for the materials to degrade, how much was um, spent and used in the actual creation of the product. So they're talking about like these product passports that will give you that greater insight. So then they talk about how there's the need for that and there's need for systems that are going to manage all of that but apis are not, are not mentioned so you could have the product 
passport people going away and building this database that isn't connected to anything else or that's being built solely in that area that aren't used to API standards that are the same that are going to be using for other parts of the product life cycle because they're, they're afraid of mentioning APIs because it's they feel that they can't be overly prescriptive about technology but I personally I believe that's a false sort of narrative like they're happy to say blockchain because everyone's ha- everyone's like oh blockchain they're happy to say autonomous cars they're happy to say cloud even you know so I mean I think API is a general purpose technology that you can actually describe. And as soon as you describe, it gets the policy people realizing all of those opportunities. So that's a long way of saying when you ask about the audiences, one of our audiences is those policy people. And what we're trying to say is that policy people, for some reason, they don't feel like they should be, that that they should have an opinion, that they should be opinionated about the use of technology. We don't live in that world. We live in digital economies now. So we do actually need to incorporate technology policy into all policy. So that's part of our argument. The other big thing we do with audiences is we do do that design thinking approach. So we've identified core audiences. So for digital government, we've identified the policy leads, the API product manager, the actual developer, and the um, uh, digital government lead within governments. So we've identified those. And then whenever we write about digital government and the use of APIs and how it ecosystems are opening up. We then have a section in our articles or in our um, reports where it goes through each of those personas and we say, what does this mean for you and for your role? So we've got that. And then same with banking. So in banking, we're, we're trying to target from our business, we're targeting at the moment, uh, regulators, uh, fintech associations, and then the API industry who can support the banking and fintech industry. So they're our key personas. So whenever we write about anything to do with open banking, so is it serving the underserved, for example, then we actually have the article shared the data and and the stories. And then after that, we say, okay, what does this mean for regulators? What does it mean for fintech associations? And what does it mean for API industry players? So we try, yeah, so we sort of have that sort of persona thinking through the audience. And is it is it quite easy to reach all those audiences or are there some that are more like talkative I suppose and more open easier for you to connect with or, or, or do you kind of connect with them together I suppose? That's a good question and we're not sure yet so this is so that's sort of new for, for us we at our planning day for our team we decided on those personas in uh, end of November last year so early December and so now we've been like making sure we speak consistently to those audiences and then 1st of April we're launching our new product so that's where um so in the meantime we've been then collecting directories of all of those personas and then the whole idea is that come first of April when we release our products we'll have like landing pages that speak specifically to each of those audiences we'll know what media they're um, reading and we'll target getting the message out to there. We'll be using social media a bit. I'm not having a great traction on um, Twitter, but it's going great on LinkedIn. Um, so I need to be able to uh, bump up my LinkedIn game really. But but yeah, so, but then what happens is then there's things like I, I, I do presentations for webinars or whatever, or we release reports and there'll be a flurry of interest after that. So then we're getting systems in place where a, a couple of years ago, I worked with Kirsten Womack to be able to develop up a model where if for an API provider, if the if someone did the mail, uh, you know, uh, signed up by mail out, then you would split that developer email 
email list, you'd use something like the Clearbit API, which populates details about that email. So their role, their you know their position, their company, those sorts of things. And then we would use language uh, processing to be able to split them. If it was an individual email address, they would go in one pile. And if they were like VP, manager, product manager, those sorts of things, they'd go in another pile. And so the ones who were just the personal ones, they're going to want the self-serve API. They just want to like get on with their day play around, they don't want to be marketed to all of that sort of thing. But the other list, the VP and so forth, they might be having a look at what you do, but they also want to be able to be engaged with like what's in it for them if they're using this API. So we built this system, automated system where it splits it off into there. So then that list of the VPs and everything, that's a list that the developer evangelist can go then and start following up with and start sort of uh, using as warm leads. So it's a similar sort of approach that we're trying to use. So we've got our main list and then from that we're going to be into we're going to be segmenting it so we go okay immediately this comes from a government regulator let's follow up and share the materials that we've got specifically for that audience and so we'll sort of build it out that way a lot of our listeners you or a lot of who we assume our listeners are in our audience in the tech storytelling space you're kind of teetering the tech literacy and the business literacy and trying to bring them the two sides together, trying to break down those silos through words and numbers and statistics and information. But how did you find this niche? How did you end up getting to this point? Because I think it shows that you really, especially in tech storytelling, you have to, it's too broad of a topic. It's too broad of an industry. So you need that niche. So how did you end up getting, becoming this expert? It's kind of crazy. So I started my professional career working in HIV AIDS response in Australia. So I sort of bumbled into that as a volunteer and then working in the in the field. But I quickly then found an interest in policy responses. So I ended up writing some of the like the anti-discrimination HIV AIDS policy in Australia, helping with that, helping with um, how you involve people with HIV to be able to sit at the table around decisions that impact on their lives. We did a lot of medication policy and getting new HIV AIDS drugs on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, that kind of thing. So I started there and that, so I really got into public health policy that way, you know, and was like really into that. But then after 10 years in HIV AIDS, it sort of burns you out. And so the, so then I moved from there into local government where I was still doing, then I was sort of doing policy, but because so much of that policy work had involved demonstrating the evidence base, using clinical trials data, all of that sort of thing. So it sort of naturally gravitated towards how do we use data to describe a community in local government and be able to draw all of that in. And, I, and then for out of that, it came into, like in public health, there's an area called social determinants of health. So your employment, your housing condition, your education level, your income level, they have a greater impact on your health outcomes than, you know, whether you eat five vegetables a day or whatever, you know? So because the issue with the five vegetables is if you live in a neighborhood where it's unsafe to walk to the supermarket and you've got to catch two buses to get there, but there's a KFC down the road, then you're going to go to the KFC, you know, sort of thing. And then also, if you're at the end of a long day working in a low paid job, then you're going to have a cigarette and 
you know, eat some takeaway. So, you know, we were, so we were sort of involved with how do we document all of these data sets from these different areas to be able to describe the health of our community? And then how do we track that in a way that we're going to be able to maintain and see the influence of our policy impacts? If we focus on urban food gardens, as we were doing, you know, then when we do that, does that improve people's relationship with, you know, sense of safety? Does that stimulate um, having farmers markets in the local area? Does it get people more involved in thinking about their nutrition? You know, all of those sorts of things. So we're doing a lot of that. And then then I moved to Europe. And so one last thing with I was doing that when we we're collecting the data sets, uh, we were building these dashboards that were trying to then display all of that information. So at the time in Australia, alcohol related harms at night was a really big issue. So I was working with 34 cities around Australia where you were what we were trying to do was map the alcohol related venues at nighttime, what time they closed and everything levels of vandalism on the street, alcohol related assaults, domestic violence cases that could be tr- contributed to alcohol, the level of other amenity that's available at nighttime economy. So we're doing all of that and we'll try, but this was before open data. So I was actually having to go to the police office officers and say, can I get access to this data, please? We want to put it into this dashboard. And they're like, what do you need that for? And then I'd go to even the internal to the local government that I was working with. I'd say, can I get your noise disturbance data from 2am to 6am? And they're like, what do you need that for? So there, So there was this constant debate around that once we got the data we're putting it into a dashboard and I was like there's got to be a better way to do this and so I'd heard about APIs that way so when I moved to Europe because uh, this was all happening in Australia in Europe I was like how do I get work in Europe so I thought I'm gonna dig into this API thing and then it snowballed from there so I that because I wanted to get back to building those dashboards somehow in some way and so the that my entry point was like is would APIs be the solution and so then at the, that stage open data was kicking up and I so then I was like okay if we had that we could do this but then the real move with APIs was in the industry so I started to just like look at what was happening reporting on that I landed a few gigs which is where we were lucky enough to meet Jennifer and then out of that we, I then was able to, um, yeah, become a bit of like an expert on APIs out of that. It just so happened it was at the time when APIs were starting to really take off. So, so luck, coincidence and drive, which is... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> This is very interesting because typically the people I know that have this ability to teeter marketing with this much deep tech knowledge tend to be the developer evangelists who may have been technical and then moved towards the marketing side, but you've been the opposite way. You don't have any technical training or you didn't before, right? None so at all. How did you learn this new language of technology, wow. of the level that you've learned? That's a really good um, question. I think one of the skills, I think uh, I wouldn't even say it's a skill. I think I would just lucky, luckily enough that it was just the way I think is from the use case perspective. But I think also because where I was in like working in local government, in those sorts of fields, then it's all, then it was all about, okay, how do we, uh, how is this useful? You know? And so because I was thinking of those use cases and th- this is that you can see this a lot in some of my early API reporting, actually 
actually, where I was pretty clueless on the technology side of stuff. So I would keep trying to come back to, okay, so if you could do this, connect these two things, blah, 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 what could you build? What would it look like? And a lot of my articles, and I think this is why I got traction in the space early on so well, was because I described the API and then I would riff off on what you could build with it. And so that, you know, like it, so it's sort of, and people I think connected with that kind of writing as far as like, ah, you know, and then, so that gave me some really great opportunities to be able to, you know, people like Alex Williams have really been supportive and helping me grow and really dig deeper into that because he really pushed. I was already interested in like, not just being a PR tech person, but he really pushed me to not settle for just having one point of view from the article, he would always ask, you know, like, how are the users thinking about this? So, you know, so you get that. So then, yeah, so the, so the use cases really led me in. And then when I was trying to piece it together and describe how that use case would operate, then that would identify for me where my technology gap was. And then I'd have to research that. It's funny because Alex actually offered me to be the Kubernetes reporter at the new uh, the new stack right at the beginning of Kubernetes, and I so I looked at it and I was like, oh, no, thank you, because <laughs> I knew like that was that would have gotten me too into technical, and I didn't want to go there, and I didn't want to <laughs> learn all of that. Like um, I'm really grateful that I mean it would have been awesome opportunity now. Imagine that um, being a global <laughs> person, a big can of worms. Kubernetes is a whole other can of. I know, but like, so yeah, so I mean, I didn't want to go there, but like, yeah, I mean, you've got to also know, my, I, I like I get asked to do, write white papers and that's because I can speak to CTOs who have come up from a technical background, but who are out of the game of day-to-day technology now because they're making business decisions. So they need something that makes sure that they don't feel stupid when they're talking about the up to, you know, adoption of a new technology understand how it's going to work and then think about it from like, what's the business focus or business value out of it. So there's two different names we're talking about. We're talking about tech marketer or tech writer, journalist and tech analyst. And the big difference between them is the amount of zeros at the end of your paycheck uh, (laughs) of your (laughs) invoice. So what distinguishes besides the rate you may charge, what distinguishes the two? How does that sales process differ? How does the actual product you're providing differ? That's really great because this, uh, this, it's so, uh, it's such a great question. That's really cool, Jennifer, because like the issue is that, so it, it loops back around on itself because of that background in public health and all of that sort of stuff. When I was doing those dashboards, the actual starting point for all of that, when you're looking at food security, alcohol, related harms or whatever, you've actually got to do causal maps. So you actually plot out, okay, who are all of the stakeholders, you know, like fast food chains, um, people uh, on low incomes, um, the street environment, you know, so you're mapping all of those sorts of different factors. And then you're trying to just sort of map how does it flow between them, you know, and what's the level of impact you'll get when you start doing that, people were then going to argue with you, you know, like it's crazy. So for alcohol, uh, alcohol related harms, for example, at night, we knew the research definitely said the more alcohol venues, the greater the level of harm. So you present that to policy people and they're like, yeah, but is it large venues or is it like small boutique? So they're like, let's invest, let's (laughs) set up um, urban planning funds where we're going to encourage lots more small bars. Like maybe that's the solution. So, you know, like, so they're going to argue those points, you know, it's just, 
it was crazy. I was like, why don't we try to invest so that there is a different nighttime makeup so that there's more things to do at night besides just drink because that's what it's like in Australia. But anyway, so what we've done with uh, with public health, digital government, open banking and open finance is we've mapped out all of the players, different stakeholders, who should be getting value out of that ecosystem. And then we've mapped the flow, how we feel that it all, that it all moves and the ways APIs contribute and grow value for all players and the level of co-creation and participation everyone can have. And then we've then we actually say, okay, for each one of those, what's the key metric? You know, so we then, and then that's what we do for our data model. So, you know, like this is only going to work if there's a large number of banks have a large number of diverse APIs. So we measure that, you know, and then what are people building with those APIs? And is that giving value for underserved, for households, for small businesses, for sole traders, that sort of thing. So we map all of that out and we try to measure each of those. So that's the analyst part. And we've got the ecosystem maps and the data and we display all of that. But then you need the stories again. So then like, so for example, one of my favorites is Snag Tights in Scotland. And so that's a woman owned business who they offer, they make, they sell tights. So they did really well before COVID came along. Then at the start of COVID, people stopped buying tights, you know, because they're home more, they don't really, you know, need them and that sort of stuff. So they saw this sudden drop off from their customer base and it was going to impact on their, the rest of their supply chain so they they tried to get fu- they tried to get financing so when we look at the open banking value map you've got apis and they should be providing cash flow optimization tools for small businesses because fintech can build them with the bank apis that has a look at your bank account information and can help make you decide you know how to work your supply chain so you're not short of money at any point so that's sort of the flow but then what we see with the with the apis and the fintech is that they one they weren't building a great range of cash flow optimization tools and when they were they were super generic so they weren't really focusing on for example women-owned businesses in this case who were maybe already locked out of the financing environment if you look statistically so even though there's a higher profit margin that's established from women-owned businesses you know so the so the, so they were being locked out there. So they ended up having to go back to their customer base and do it saying, can we do a two for one deal where you order two tights now, we'll send you one now, but we'll send you the other one in November. And they th- that's how they got their financing coffers filled, which got them through the COVID slump. And then they were, you know, like they were, I think they even started delivering that November supply a little bit earlier or something because they had and then they've suddenly got all so even though there's open banking the apis the fintech building the cash flow optimization it wasn't serving this customer base in a huge market it's like it's like a three billion dollar market globally or something they've got customers all around the world that before covid they were seeing really rapid growth none of that mattered as far as how the system was operating Definitely not in traditional banking, but not even in open banking. So we've got the data to show that, but it's only that story that people go, oh, okay. So then how do you solve for that? And then you buy, then what you do is you build more persona based fintech solutions and you target, you know, you, you do your research. Like the problem with banking was they were building the one savings product for for everyone that the bank used, a uh, bank customer, r- w- rather than, you know, what we really need is we need a savings product that's going to help adult parents who are looking, uh, adult people, couples who are looking after their aging parents. They need a specific savings product for that or for to fund the education for their kids or, you know, like th- we need specific 
products like that and open banking and that ecosystem is still coming up with the generic products like we saw in the past. So, you know, like you come back to that story element, but the hopefully the analysis leads you there as well. I guess kind of one thing I sort of thought from what you're saying was platformable is about sort of telling stories about this technology. But I think from what you said, it sounds like APIs are, they, they are kind of storytelling technology. They sort of make stories accessible or visible that, you know, you wouldn't all ordinarily see, right? Absolutely. I think what, and what we're trying to do with the ecosystem mapping, it will help reveal what stories aren't being told. So, you know, like, so then the, and the data and the analysis, you'll be able to see those connections between the various players. So then you can see the gaps. And this will be hugely important in areas like health, where when you're looking at response to an emerging cri- a pandemic or crisis like we've had with COVID, you want to be able to map out where the relationships are and how that value is flowing so that you can either see who's not involved and get them involved or see where your, uh, your networks are strongest to be able to build products faster that serve more people. So you can sort of like you can use it, you could use it as a business tool to identify new opportunities in the market that you weren't actually pursuing already. I have to ask, are you, how do you get all this data? Are you an API consumer yourself? So we are an API consumer, but we're more the API consumption we do at the moment is more on integrating between various elements of our business. So the mailer like going into our um, spreadsheets to do that segmentation split. We've got Airtable and we're using the API to get that into visualizations, those sorts of things. So we use APIs internally. We're making our we're going to make our data set available for API. A lot of our data is well, it's open, it's mostly open data that we're getting we've got a couple of data sets that we will they're not they're available as json files but they're not api available sort of thing so they're um they're uploaded regularly to the some of the um regulator websites and so we grab those but a lot of it isn't what we have to do for this is go to each of the bank developer portals look at their api list categorize them into our format you know that sort of thing look at them at their use cases so it's so yeah so actually api the field isn't mature enough where there's that sort of level of information when there is it's more like the usual business registration and even vc sort of api sort of information which doesn't get to this issue they're more interested in valuations by you know and uh and maybe a little bit of like consumer um, usage and that sort of thing but they're really heavily into like who's getting investment funds and that sort of stuff whereas where more into how is it being you know who, who who's making use of it um and how does it work in an ecosystem way is it really helping people create their own value and what you're describing is just journalism of what you're doing you're using a lot of technology you're using a lot of data to give the big picture view but then to give the idea you have to zoom into individual stories that's what that's what NPR is constantly talking about because explaining how half a million people died is a number that's unfathomable but if you tell the story of one person or two people, that makes the difference. So you're doing a great job, Mark. Exactly. So then, yeah, and with that, so we've got some tools coming out. Like, so we've got a um, open banking value tool that we've got in prototype at the moment that's available, but we're building on that. And basically we go through as part of our analysis. Yes, we've got the quants around, you know, number of banks, number of products, number of fintech, all of that sort of stuff. But then we also go through and look at all the unstructured data. So where banks, fintech or whoever, I know I keep going back to that. We do health as 
well. But where the you know CEO or VP of um, platforms or whatever has said our API has generated X percent new account creation or is saving us X dollars a year or whatever, we put that into a separate spreadsheet. And now we've got this tool so you can go through and say, I'm interested in all banks in Asia Pacific that are retail banks that have created new account creation with their APIs. And then out of that will come just the stories of who who has done that. So it's sort of trying to give life to some of the stories behind the data as well. I'm conscious of time. So I wanted to kind of close out the show by asking you how you would like to see the sort of future play out in this sort of space, in the API space, and also how like platformable is going to like play a part in that. Like what would you want it to look like over the next year or even two or three years? Look, our, so our biggest, I think so from a from an operational point of view, our biggest problem at the moment is that there are not the available data sets for you to be able to analyse levels of participation. So we've still invisibilised the opportunity to measure everyone's right to participate. So we've seen this with, first of all, with COVID, we, uh, we've seen this where we're not actually tracking Filipina nurses who make up a large part of Europe and UK um, health workforce. We, we can't even measure measure the impact of COVID on, on them. We can't measure whether they're getting COVID vaccines or not. You know, so you can't measure by a lot of these data sets, you can't measure by gender, you can't measure by migrant status, you can't measure by race. So as a result, then we can't, then all of this gets invisibilized. So we've like, we can build out our own, we've built our own data set around is fintech, does it have women and non, non-white people in management as an indicator of like, are they, you know, how big they are? And we try to amplify those stories. But you can't do that. Like with that snag tights example, you can't look at whether alternative financing done by bank APIs is reaching women-owned businesses because the data on businesses isn't categorized by whether by gender. So you can't see whether or not then the financing is flowing through. In like in health, you can't see that. You know, so the, so to me, that's operationally that's a big issue we've got with being able to really measure the the value is being distributed to all stakeholders. That's our biggest thing. And where I see, I mean, we've just chosen the four hardest subjects: so finance, government, health, and circular economy. And so we're going to just focus on those four open ecosystems. We believe that's going to be the societal fabric, that a digital fabric that's needed to be able to build the solutions in a collaborative manner that suit a digital economy. So and so we're sort of mapping out and growing how we see all of those, and hopefully it'll be the sort of data set that regulators can make can use to make sure that everyone's getting a participatory opportunity. Businesses can use to be able to see where there's gaps and opportunities in the market, individuals can use to get better ideas about how they can participate and co-create their own value. So like, yeah, so that's sort of where we want to go. It's going to be a, a, it's a fun future. Okay, amazing. So I'm, I'm conscious you, you've you got a meeting in a few minutes. So I just wanted to give you a chance to, yeah, just kind of where can people find you online? Are you on Twitter? Um, yeah, and where, where can people find out more about you and Platformable? Sure. So it's platformable.com. So platformable, A-B-L-E.com. And then my Twitter is at mgboydcom. So have a look for me there. And yeah, but please stay in touch, follow up. On most of the website, there's Calendly links and I'm always open to, 
people who want to set up a half hour chat with me would be great to talk more about it. We've got a whole heap of information about how we view open ecosystems and what the potential is. So I'd love to have that conversation with you all. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. And remember, you can follow us at underscore talk about tech. We'll be back uh, next time with another great guest. So thanks for listening. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. This was so cool. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.